The military element of national power is not just regular armed forces fighting on the battlefield. This episode begins to look at the varied means and methods of using military power, once again drawing observations from the current war in Ukraine, here on the ancient art of modern warfare. Welcome to the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and, at one time anyway, instructor at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now when the world is facing war again. The military element of national power is as varied as any of the other elements. Once again, the conflict in Ukraine provides stark examples of the uses of these elements of national power, and of course this includes examples of the many ways military power can be used. These range at the lowest end from preparedness, that is training and equipping for war and operations short of war, proxy war, limited war, and full mobilization short of total war. Total war, the unlimited use of all means of military power was described by Clausewitz, but as Clausewitz also remarked, it doesn't exist in reality because there are always other factors which serve to restrain it. I'll touch on why that is in a later episode. Now, rather than address the different facets of military power in any sort of logical framework, I'm going to begin with the use of militias and mercenaries. Militias, which consist of the citizens in arms, is perhaps the purest expression of a nation at war. Militias stand in contrast with the professional standing army, which is necessary for many uses of the military element of national power, but often stands apart from these other elements and from the citizenry. The professional army is often regarded as a tool by the political elite, and in this modern era, that political elite rarely has any direct stake in the life and death of the soldiers that make up that army. Militia, in all its forms, is something else, and the political elite cannot commit the militia to war without responding to the electorate or considering the effect of taking those citizens away from the economy as well as from their families and communities. Ukraine expected to have to go to militia or partisan warfare since the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. The Ukrainian government and military believed that they would not be able to resist a major Russian invasion, but that they would be able to use a national resistance effort to bleed the Russians as the Russians suffered in Afghanistan and, more pertinently, to the Ukrainian resistance to the Soviet Union from 1944 into the 1950s. Fortunately, Ukraine, the United States, and NATO allies took the opportunity over the last seven years to train, equip, and prepare the Ukrainian armed forces for war. The low-level proxy war of the past seven years between Ukraine and Russia in Ukraine's eastern districts also provided some measure of combat experience fighting separatists and Russian quasi-mercenary forces. The Russian buildup along the Ukrainian border gave Ukraine ample warning to prepare, with Russia even telegraphing likely attack corridors. Russia delaying their attack until the ground was about to thaw was also helpful, and altogether allowed the Ukraine regular military to blunt the initial thrusts. It would not be enough, however, and Ukraine initiated its standing plans to mobilize the citizenry in defense of the country. This concept of mobilizing the citizenry is not new, but began with the French Revolution. As the mobilization decree read, 
from this moment until such time as its enemies shall have been driven from the soil of the Republic, all Frenchmen are in permanent requisition for the services of the armies. The young men shall fight, the married men shall forge arms and transport provisions, the women shall make tents and clothes and shall serve in hospitals, the children shall turn our old lint into linen, the old men shall betake themselves to the public squares in order to arouse the courage of the warriors and preach hatred to the kings and unity of the republic. And, in a 21st century way, that is what's happening in Ukraine, with the exception that even the old men are fighting, and some, fighting for the defense of their country, are women. What surprised many is the will of the Ukrainian people to resist. Postmodern society, especially in the West, no longer believes that the average citizen maintains the will to resist. This may even be true in countries that have very well organized militia with the plan to mobilize them for national defense, such as Switzerland and Austria. We can see this in the number of their citizens who request exemption or other public service in lieu of military service. Even the United States may not have the same national resolve in the face of an invasion as has been exhibited by the Ukrainians. My own guess is that about 40% of Americans would elect to sit out any invasion rather than volunteer in any capacity to resist. It could even be higher than that. In Ukraine, however, various types of volunteers rallied to its defense and it's important to understand the different forms of these militias, their characteristics, utility, strengths, weaknesses, and potential trouble. These volunteers might be categorized into territorial defense forces, other volunteers, and civil defense, both organized and unorganized. The territorial defense forces of Ukraine are equivalent to the United Kingdom's Home Guard of World War II, or the State Guards in the United States today. In response to the Russian buildup in late 2021, the Ukrainian government passed the National Resistance Act on January 1, 2022, which reorganized the territorial defense forces. According to that act, units of the territorial defense forces were intended to ensure security and order behind the front line, assist the armed forces in combat operations, guard key infrastructure facilities, and render assistance in combating hostile and subversive activities to their local areas. The Ukrainian defense establishment, however, was not structured to accept the massive influx of volunteers that came forward or were necessary to repel the invasion, and many volunteers were turned away. This led to the existence of irregular volunteer forces. These forces are largely self-organized units, often with non-standard equipment. Some form up in rearward areas, training and otherwise making themselves ready for when they can be integrated into the territorial defense forces. Others seek out combat on their own initiative, and this can create problems that I'll discuss later. Then there is the International Legion for the Territorial Defense of Ukraine. These are well-organized formations of military veterans from other countries who volunteer to help defend Ukraine. The idea is that these people are supposed to volunteer in their home countries, applying at the appropriate Ukrainian embassy or consulate. They are then interviewed, screened, and if accepted, will have transportation and integration to, into the Ukrainian armed forces arranged through the embassy. This concept is not unlike the citizens from the United States who volunteered to fight for France or Britain in the World Wars, or the soldiers and airmen from Eastern European states who managed to escape from German-occupied territories to serve in the British Army and Royal Air Force in World War II. Of course, these kinds of units are not without their problems. These include language, integration with the regular army command and control structure, and screening individuals for suitability. In the world wars and in Ukraine today, ill-suited people get through. 
This includes people who lie about their military service, people with criminal records, health problems, and people who can't adjust. Nonetheless, the effort is made to screen out the ill-suited and properly integrate the rest into the Ukrainian Armed Forces command structure and its military justice system, too. Like the regular territorial defense forces, there are other foreign volunteers who manage to make it into Ukraine by other means. There is some indication that the Ukrainian government is trying to organize these in some fashion, training them and preparing them for onward movement. In many cases, this screening results in dismissing these volunteers and sending them back across the Polish border. Often, the volunteers themselves realize they've gotten into more than they expected and are more than happy to go home. Now, before moving on to the utility of such volunteer forces, I'll address their legal status under the laws of war. Under the laws and customs of war, sometimes called the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, there are certain criteria that must be met for someone to be considered a privileged belligerent. That is, someone who has the protection of law to fight in a war. These are, one, to be commanded by a person responsible for his subordinates. Two, to have a fixed distinctive emblem recognizable at a distance. Three, to carry arms openly. And four, to conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. The conventions that make up these laws clearly state that these criteria apply, quote, to a militia or volunteer corps, unquote, as well as the regular army. No nation is perfect in its compliance with the laws and customs of war, but that doesn't mean the law of war is unimportant. I will show how Ukraine is making a good effort to follow the law of war in this regard. According to the U.S. Department of Defense Law of War Manual, the intentions of the law of war are to protect combatants, non-combatants, and civilians from unnecessary suffering, to provide certain fundamental protections for persons who fall into the hands of the enemy, particularly prisoners of war, civilians, and military wounded, sick, and shipwrecked, to assist military commanders in ensuring the disciplined and efficient use of military force, and to preserve the professionalism and humanity of combatants, facilitating the restoration of peace. Each of these intentions remain important in war and are directly applicable to the current war in Ukraine. First, it's important to distinguish between legitimate belligerents and the civilian population. This is to protect non-combatant civilians. The purpose of a military force, especially in a defensive war, is to protect the civilian population from violence by an enemy. Being able to distinguish military forces from civilians requires some sort of distinguishing characteristics. That's why the law of war requires military forces to have a fixed distinctive emblem. In this case, fixed doesn't mean something permanently attached, but rather something that is consistent in its use. For this purpose, the Ukrainians use a blue armband or tape to identify members of its armed forces and yellow tape for volunteers and territorial defense forces. This yellow tape is worn even when the person doesn't have a military uniform. The yellow tape is sufficient to meet the requirement under the laws and customs of war. As an aside, it might be noted that Russian forces use red or white tape. Such measures are necessary when both sides have similar uniforms and use visually similar equipment. Persons captured while wearing such markings, and ideally with some sort of identification card, should be protected as prisoners of war and not treated as unprivileged belligerents, spies, saboteurs, or criminals. 
persons without such markings are civilians and should be protected from direct attack and, in turn, should not be directly participating in hostilities themselves. The requirement to be commanded by a person responsible for his subordinates has several purposes. First, it goes back to the just war principle that no one should fight without proper authority. That person responsible for his subordinates, the commanding officer, traces his or her authority back to the highest command levels. It is also intended to be able to hold that commander responsible for the conduct of those under his or her command. More practically, it helps assure, quote, the disciplined and efficient use of military force and preserve the professionalism and humanity of combatants, unquote. To facilitate this, Ukraine requires volunteers serving with the Territorial Defense Forces to sign an enlistment contract which requires following the orders of officers appointed over them and subjects them to military regulation. The volunteers who just show up and aren't incorporated into the Territorial Defense Forces of Ukraine should stay in the rear and not directly participate in hostilities until such time as they have official authorization. Otherwise, their actions could interfere with the disciplined and efficient use of military force, lose accountability for conducting operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war, and risk being treated as criminals in the event of capture by the enemy. Reports indicate that Ukraine is trying to establish such controls. The end purpose of doing all of this, as is the only acceptable purpose to any war, is to establish a more just and lasting peace. Unnecessary destruction, violence, and abuse of non-combatants, whether civilians or prisoners of war, will create lasting animosities that will breed long-term resentment, desire for revenge, and increase the likelihood of future armed conflict. This is where a discussion of other civilian volunteers becomes important. Many Ukrainians are supporting the war effort in ways other than fighting. This includes serving in first aid centers, cooking food for the Territorial Defense Forces, providing transportation, and clearing battle damage, which could include using John Deere tractors to haul abandoned Russian equipment away. None of these could be realistically considered direct participation in hostilities or fighting in combat, and these persons should be protected under the laws of war. There are other Ukrainian civilians taking other actions, however, which could not only be considered direct participation, but whose actions could lead to the targeting of any civilian by the Russian forces. These include individuals acting as snipers or otherwise taking pot shots at Russian troops. These persons are directly participating in hostilities. This is not a violation of war in and of itself, but these persons certainly lose their protected status while doing this. These persons, if captured, could also be charged for murder or destruction of property as they are not privileged to take part in war. More concerning may be Ukrainian citizens observing and reporting on Russian movements, taking pictures and forwarding them to military command. These persons, if captured by Russian troops, could be treated as spies and subject to trial, imprisonment, or even death. Although individuals could say that they understand and take that risk for themselves, such irregular activity could be used by Russian troops as an excuse to treat all civilians as legitimate targets. That excuse is impermissible under the laws of war, but could nonetheless be claimed by the Russians to justify such actions. These persons are defending their homes, and it's understandable that they would be willing to take such risks. It would be better, however, for such persons to get permission from a local territorial forces commander 
get an identity card, and wear the yellow armband when performing such tasks. Having established the legality of such forces, we should consider whether these forces are an asset, a liability, or ineffective as a resource to the military element of national power. Since the time of the Spartans, victory in decisive combat requires well-trained and disciplined soldiers. Not all combat is decisive, however, and less well-trained militia could be enough in other, less critical combat tasks. Moreover, using militia in secondary roles can free up regular forces for decisive action at critical times and places. In this way, militia is used as an economy of force. This seems to be how the Ukrainians are using the territorial defense forces. They are the equivalent of light infantry, using light infantry tactics although at a much lower level of proficiency than regular forces. This training is limited to individual and sometimes crew-served weapons. This is okay as they make up for this in unit cohesion. Essentially, everybody in each unit knows each other, and they may have known each other all of their lives. They also have detailed knowledge of the territory they are defending. This alone can provide a decisive advantage over any attacker. The downside is that although the reorganization made the territorial defense forces part of the regular military establishment, they are not well integrated with regular combat forces, and their minimal training may make them less effective in combat and more likely to suffer what might be unnecessary casualties. Nonetheless, armed with advanced but soldier-friendly anti-tank systems, they have been successful at blunting armored advances and conducting small raids on nearby Russian loggers and staging points. Their knowledge of the terrain and connections with the local population mean that they can exploit the terrain and the environment to their advantage. As I said, this frees up regular Ukrainian troops for defensive operations in more open or remote areas and to launch counterattacks. The International Legion so far has a mixed record. As was the case for the Territorial Defense Forces, Ukraine was overwhelmed with the number of volunteers. In the beginning, many people were allowed to enlist who were not qualified to do so. This includes people who lied about their military service or misrepresented their experience. For example, someone who served in Afghanistan in a, or in a logistics or administrative function, someone who may have heard or seen an occasional car bomb or mortar attack, may not have the background to prepare them for conventional combat in Europe. There were also a number of people who were otherwise unsuited for service there. This would include people who were social misfits or physically unfit for the rigors of combat. According to the reports from the BBC and Al Jazeera, these initial problems are being sorted out. The greatest value of the International Legion seems to be of providing subject matter experts to train Ukrainian recruits and just to be seen by Ukrainian citizens and the military as a visible sign of international support. The value of these roles cannot be underestimated. As is the case with Ukrainian citizen volunteers, the greatest challenge comes from foreign volunteers who have just shown up and self-organized into small units. According to some reports, these may be up to battalion in size, that is several hundred soldiers. These units can cause significant problems both tactically and in the larger effort by Ukraine to promote the legitimacy of its cause. These unorganized volunteers do not meet the criteria for privileged belligerents under the laws of war. If they take part in hostilities before being integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces, they undermine all of the reasons mentioned above for the laws of war's existence. More practically, 
They're independent operations without a duly appointed and accountable command structure, disrupts the disciplined and efficient use of military force, and could undermine the professionalism and humanity of combatants. This could lead to allegations of war crimes and other violations of the law of war being directed against the Ukrainian government and obstruct the restoration of peace. In my own opinion, these negative factors outweigh any tactical success these irregular volunteers may contribute. In summary, well-regulated militias are one aspect of the national element of military power. They can be just as important to success in modern warfare as they were in wars going back to the American and French revolutions. That success, however, requires them to be well-regulated. They must be properly trained, work under military command and under military discipline, and conduct their operations in a manner consistent with the laws and customs of war. Ukraine's plans to mobilize and integrate citizen and foreign militias were not up to their need, nor could they accommodate the flood of volunteers. If Ukraine does not or cannot take firm control of this, it could contribute to tactical and strategic failure. I believe that the most critical aspect to address is the uninvited foreign volunteers self-organizing on Ukrainian territory. According to reports, Ukraine is taking steps to correct deficiencies in screening, training, integrating, and control of these foreign militias. In reality, the government and the Ukrainian armed forces may not have the capacity to do all that needs to be done, while simultaneously confronting a renewed Russian assault in the East. It's possible, I hope it's possible, that NATO, the EU, or the OSCE could help in that regard. In the next episode, I will look at the Russian side of using militias, and more pertinent to Russia, mercenaries in their use of the military element of national power. Join me for that discussion in the ancient art of modern warfare.